The following lecture was delivered at the 14th Annual National Jewish Retreat in Washington, D.C., a project of the Rohr Jewish Learning Institute. We hope you enjoy it, and we encourage you to visit jretreat.com for information on upcoming retreats. Rabbi Manus Friedman will now present his lecture, When Pigs Are Kosher. So when pigs fly means it's not going to happen, right? How about when pigs become kosher? Is that going to happen? Actually, the Hebrew name for the pig is chazir, which means to return. Now it's taken away, it's gone, it's off limits, not available. But in the future, it will return. And in case you've been worrying and being sleepless about this, you will be able to eat pork. How good, what good news is that? As if we don't have enough to eat. So what is the story with things that are not kosher? Will they forever be non-kosher? Or is non-kosher unholy, ungodly, sinful? Is all of that temporary? On the one hand, it's got to be temporary. I mean, how can evil go on forever? That wouldn't be right. Only holiness, only godliness is forever. And yet, on the other hand, it's a commandment in the Torah, and Torah is forever. So the Torah says that the animal that we call the pig is not kosher. What does it mean that it's only temporary? Well, then Torah is only temporary. So here's, here are the two sides of the argument. The unholiness of the pig has got to go because unholiness can't remain forever. But on the other hand, if it's a statement in Torah, that's forever. So if pig suddenly becomes kosher, it means that the non-kosher condition of the pig was never real, only temporary. So what we're really dealing with is the nature of the commandments. Are they forever? Must they be forever? Or do they serve their purpose and then we don't need them anymore? And not only about forbidden things, but what about mitzvahs? Men have to put on tefillin. There's nothing unholy. It's a mitzvah. Is it possible that that's only temporary? Can God change his mind in the future and say, enough with the tefillin, we're going to come up with a new mitzvah. So the Rambam makes it very clear, and I think that this, this will be the, one of the themes for this uh, retreat in general, what's real? We experience the physical. So we consider it real. We don't experience the divine. So how real is it? Or should we be thinking the opposite? If we can experience the physical, it can't be that real. But the divine... We don't experience it because it's so real. The point of Torah, the function and purpose of Torah, is to reverse our perception. We think we are real, and we have an opinion about God. He is, he isn't. I like him, I don't like him. He runs the world, half the world. <laughs> Sometimes, not all the time. 
The Torah says the exact opposite. Change your perspective. The physical is not always real. Well, it's always real, but it's not always true. Whereas the godly is always true. So just to make things really, really complicated. There are two realities, both real. One is called facts. Facts are real. The other is called truth. Truth is certainly real. The sad thing is that facts and truth are not always the same thing. Like, for example, human beings are essentially good. That true? <laughs> so far, I'm getting no. Yes, one vote for yes. Human beings are essentially good. It's true, but it's not a fact. The fact is people are horrible. <laughs> Worse than animals. So which one is real? They're both real, but because the world is messed up, Mashiach is not here. The facts and the truth don't always match. I mean, even Mashiach. Mashiach is coming. Yes or no? That was good. <laughs> not a single no vote. It's true. Mashiach is coming, but it's not a fact. The fact is, he isn't coming. Every day we say he's coming, he doesn't come. Did he come yesterday? No, and that's a fact. <laughs> uh <-huh. clears throat> Even I wasn't born yesterday. <laughs> so we see that the truth and the facts are often at odds. In fact, it's a fact. In fact, when the facts match the truth, we call it a miracle. Because we, we assume we're accustomed to the facts not matching the truth. And the best example is the splitting of the sea. Miracle of miracles. The Jews are on their way to Mount Sinai, which is why they left Egypt. I don't know why God couldn't talk to them in Egypt. He had to take them out of Egypt just to talk to them. And he said, meet me at Sinai, we'll talk. So they're on the way to Mount Sinai, and there's an ocean. So they asked God, what are we supposed to do? There were four different opinions. Let's fight. Let's go back. Let's surrender. Let's kill ourselves. All sorts of opinions. But they asked God, what should we do? And God said, uh, weren't you on your way to Mount Sinai? They said, yeah, but there's an ocean. God says, if you're going to Sinai, go. They said, and what about the ocean? <laughs> and God said, you need to be at Sinai, so go. So they went. And what happened? The ocean got out of the way. What a miracle! Actually, what happened? The truth is, Jews had to be at Sinai. The ocean? <laughs> the old joke, like, who put an ocean here? Why does the ocean have to be here? Move it over there. So the ocean was there, and that was a fact. But it wasn't the truth. So the difference between truth and fact, and this is really important in our everyday life, fact means 
what is real incidentally it happens to be this way it is doesn't have to be truth on the other hand has to be but it isn't <laughs> so the truth eventually must prevail and the fact must eventually surrender to the truth human beings are not meant to die that's true like before they ate from the tree of knowledge Adam and Chava were not meant to die so death is a possibility it has become a fact it is not the truth the truth is people should not die so after Mashiach comes people will not die is that a miracle? no it's simply the truth and what's been going on in the last 5,700 and some years? Well, the fact is people were dying. But that fact has got to go. Because it's not the truth. So is it real? Oh, yeah. You know, like what's real? Death and taxes. Except that taxes will continue to go up. Death has to stop. Because taxes was never a truth, it's only a fact. So in our world, when the fact surrenders to the truth, and it must, we call it a miracle. When Mashiach comes, the world will be perfect. What does that mean? Every fact will be the truth, and every truth will be a fact. So if it's true that human beings are essentially good, that will become the fact. Because there'll be no gap between fact and truth. That's only a gullus world. But a redeemed world, if it's true, then it is the fact. And if it's a fact, it's only because it's true. So, the Torah wants to introduce us to a truth that is real in addition to the fact that is real but it's got to go back in Russia under Stalin it was very difficult to keep Judaism alive to tell your child to make a bracha, well, you have to be very careful. In public, if somebody hears and reports it, you're in trouble. So, it was impossible to practice Judaism under Stalin. Was that a truth or a fact? So, some people who were very idealistic they said, I don't care, Stalin doesn't impress me, I am not intimidated, I'm going to continue practicing Judaism just like before. They died. Then there were those who said, you know, be realistic. Can't do it. You can't do it. There are spies everywhere, everyone was spying on everyone. You can't do it. So we're just going to have to wait till Stalin dies or communism collapses because under the situation now, it's not possible. So they gave it up. And their children and grandchildren are fablunged. The Chabad approach was you have to recognize the fact even while you continue to believe in the truth. So what do you do? You must have a cheder. Children must learn olive bays. You must, because that's the truth. But don't do it above ground and get yourself killed. Do it underground. In other words, recognize the real reality of the fact 
even though it's temporary, but it's real. So work with it. Work around the fact, but head for the truth. That is the Chabad way of thinking in every issue in life. So now, true or false, Jews don't eat pork. See, we got back to the pig. You thought I forgot. <laughs> Jews don't eat pork. True or false? Hey, what? <laughs> Ask any anti-Semite. They know Jews don't eat pork. <laughs> so you say to them, oh, but there are Jews who do. No, they're not. Jews don't eat pork. Say, so, right, and they also own all the banks. <laughs> it's true. Jews don't eat pork. You know a Jew who does? That's just a fact. Factually, yes. In truth, no. Which means, a year from now, will Jews be eating pork? No, because the truth prevails. Now, the fact is, yes, Jews eat pork. But if we're too impressed with facts, we lose sight of the truth. And that's never a good thing. Like men and women marry each other. Is that true? Is that a fact? Not anymore, right? <laughs> Not anymore. The fact is men marry men, women marry women. It's a fact. A year from now, the truth will prevail and marriage will be between a man and a woman. I tell you this little story. I was speaking with a group of rabbis and the, com the topic was continu Jewish continuity. We're, we're all concerned with Jewish continuity. So they, they were all coming up with these innovative, modern ways of being Jewish. So when I spoke, I said, we're talking about continuity. Why do you keep coming up with new ideas? If you want continuity, you have to do what your grandfather did, what his grandfather did. That's called continuity. This one rabbi got really upset. And he said, why are you ignoring 50% of the population? I said, who am I ignoring? Why did you say grandfather? Why didn't you say grandmother? I said, you're so behind the times. My grandfather was a woman. <laughs> How dare you assume that just because he was my grandfather, he identified as a man. You know the scary thing? He didn't have an answer. Because <laughs> what were you? No. That's really scary. <laughs> so the truth is, marriage is a man and a woman. The fact is, uh, you know, whatever. So here's the story with the kosher and the non-kosher. As we said at the beginning, on the one hand, how can things not be kosher if the world is perfect? Not kosher means something is wrong. Well, if it's still wrong, how has the world become perfect? And in general, evil can't be permanent because it's not part of God. Only that which is godly is permanent. And on the other hand, if the Torah says it's wrong, how can that not be forever and ever? Torah is the word of God. So concerning the pig, we have a simple solution. The pig is not kosher because it doesn't chew its cud. So if the pig wants to be kosher, he better start chewing his cud. <laughs> if the pig starts chewing its cud, then it will be kosher, and the Torah hasn't changed at all. The Torah says an animal 
that has split hooves but doesn't chew its cud is not kosher. And that's forever and ever and ever. The pig will chew its cud and that will make it kosher. So the Torah is not going to change. Nature will change. Or science will develop a different kind of pig. Yeah, we have seedless watermelon. <laughs> Why can't we have pigs that chew their cud? You know, a little manipulation of the, uh, of the genetic code, and you can do anything. Why we need seedless watermelon, I don't know. And why we need kosher pigs, I don't know either. But that is in the plan, that the pig will become kosher by chewing its cud. The same thing is true with all forbidden unholinesses. Those things that can be salvaged, those things that can be transformed into holiness, will be. Those things that cannot will simply stop existing. So it's not that it will become kosher contradicting what the Torah says. It will either change and be kosher or it won't exist anymore at all. And that's because it's not, this is, this is really an essential Jewish thought. It's not like pigs are disgusting animals. I mean, they're not called pigs for nothing, right? <laughs> they're pigs. They're disgusting animals. So God says, don't eat that. It's disgusting. That's not how it works. God said, this animal, you know, with the little tail, don't eat it. I, I don't like it. It happens to be disgusting. But why does God forbid the consumption of pig? Because it's disgusting? No. I'm not sure that the cow is any smarter or um, hygienically <laughs> superior. Pigs don't, sh I mean, cows don't shower either. So you can wash down the cow, you can wash down the pig. So what makes something forbidden? It's condition or God's preference. God says, I created cows and I created pigs. I created the cow for you to eat. I created the pig not for human consumption. Jewish consumption. Why? That's God's will. If what is forbidden is forbidden because it's God's will, God's will is not going to change. God is forever. So how can something that God forbids become permissible? That's the that's the, the, the principle which we're working with. If God says, I don't like it, he will never like it. He doesn't change his mind. So if the pig was forbidden because it's disgusting, then just wash it, clean it up, and it's fine. But it's not because... So, what is wrong with adultery? Anybody know? <laughs> no opinion on that one? Why is adultery forbidden? Well, it breaks up the family, you made a vow, you shouldn't do that. No, 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 no. Adultery is forbidden because God can't stand it. What can't he stand about it? I don't know. So a man says to me, I cheated on my wife. But it's, it's okay, it's okay. She forgives me. I say, she forgives you? Was it her commandment you violated? What do you mean she forgives you? 
Adultery is one of the Ten Commandments. She's in charge of the Ten Commandments. <laughs> if she forgives you, it's not a sin? All right, she can forgive you for the insult, for, the, for, the, for her personal, but she can't forgive you for the sin. She's not God. She's not even a priest. And priests can't forgive you either. So adultery is wrong because of some divine thinking. It's not surprising that if in the divine scheme of things it is wrong, it will probably cause some problems and pain in the physical as well. But it's not the pain that it's causing that makes it forbidden. Does it make sense? So all things that are forbidden is because they are they don't they don't fit God's plan. And very often that plan is mysterious. You can't mix meat and milk. Why? It doesn't work for him. Why doesn't it work for him? You're not supposed to ask that. That's like if a wife says, I can't stand when you do that. The worst thing you can do is ask why. I mean, if you want to stay married. <laughs> if you want to stay married, don't ask why. First of all, because she doesn't know. She doesn't know why. When something really annoys you, it's not because you decided that it should annoy you. You didn't come up with a reason for it to annoy you. You can't stand the scratching on a blackboard? Why? Can I change your mind on that? <laughs> Can I convince you you shouldn't be bothered by it? No. So what really happens when a woman says, I can't stand when you do that, and the husband says, why? What he's actually saying, and it's only thinly disguised, what he's actually saying is, you want me to stop doing it? Or are you going to give me a reason? Why should I stop doing it? And the wife is thinking, I just gave you the best reason in the world. I can't stand it. That's not good enough for you? This is the beginning of the end. So you never ask why a person feels the way they feel. You can ask what. What does this do to you? What happens when I do this thing you can't stand? So yes, I want to understand, but not why. I already know why. I should stop doing it because it really bothers you. So when God says, it really bothers me when you mix meat and milk, we don't ask why. That's him. If you were God, it would bother you too. Why? Because that's the way it is. It's not something God invented. It's him. For God is godly. Meat and milk is not. Not godly. Why? What's wrong with it? I just told you. It's not godly. Yeah, but why? <laughs> this is how you end up in divorce. So we don't do that with God because we don't want to get divorced. So, <clears throat> if the pig will start to chew its cud, then it will match and, and, and satisfy God's preferences. He likes animals that have split hooves and chew their cud. So the pig already has split hooves. It just needs to chew its cud. So when it does, it will be kosher. If it doesn't, it will have to stop existing. So those things that will not change will disappear. Because without godliness, it can't live or exist forever. So it will stop existing. It will have served its purpose, no longer necessary, it's gone. 
a little bit off the topic, but somebody said, uh, I heard that Gehenna, or hell, is only for 12 months. It's good news. But the question this person was asking was, you mean after 12 months Hitler will be done? That doesn't sound right. I said, what makes you think that Hitler is in hell? Hell is a Jewish neighborhood. What, what, what would Hitler be doing there? I mean, imagine you're in hell. Imagine. And Hitler walks in. Moves in. You would pick up and leave. There goes the neighborhood. Why do we think Hitler is in hell? To be in hell is a privilege. It means there is something to salvage. There's nothing to salvage with Hitler. He doesn't exist anymore because he has no right to exist anymore. That which has no godliness to it cannot exist past its usefulness. So don't worry about it. He will not be in hell. <laughs> Actually, somebody put it, I think, very, very well. What exactly is hell? Now, we have a very Christian idea. We've seen the paintings, <laughs> the drawings, fire and, and brimstone and s devils and pitchforks. and <laughs> That is so ridiculous. You will burn in hell. What's going to burn? Your soul? How do you burn a soul? <laughs> so somebody put it really very well. We are all on our way to heaven after we die. Not that we plan on dying. But when a person dies, he goes to heaven. Getting there is hell. Traffic, <laughs> potholes, getting to heaven is hell. That's it. So there's no such place. And that's why it can't go on forever. It's not a place. It's the path. Getting to heaven is hell. You know why? Because in heaven you don't have your body. And you kind of like your body. We get a little attached to our bodies. So leaving the body and adjusting to living without the body, that's eh, hell. But once you make the adjustment, you're in heaven. Isn't that a beautiful way of saying it? Hell <laughs> is getting to heaven. So that which does not have a potential godliness that can be polished up and, and, and cleaned off and, and made to shine again doesn't even go to hell. Because there's nothing to salvage. So the animal that can become godly will, those forbidden things that cannot become godly will never. They simply will stop existing because the world will be godly. Or in different words, every fact will have become the truth. And in truth, there is nothing godless. So what are we looking forward to? You know, this is the first lecture and we're already talking about the end of days. <laughs> we'll make a quick jump to the end. Let's just get right to the, to the punchline. What are we looking forward to? Three things. All Jews will be excited about Judaism. 
all human beings will be moral and live in peace. And the curse, by the sweat of your brow you will make bread, will end. It will not be necessary to work in order to live. Why? Because all delicacies, all of our needs will be available so abundantly, it won't cost anything, you won't need money, you won't need to go to work. We will have all that we need without having to work. Just like Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, of all the trees of the garden they could eat and that would have kept them alive forever without their doing any work. Thank God they did eat from the tree so that we get to work hard to make a living. Somehow that's a blessing. In, in some way that is good for us. Well, it was, but enough already. Whatever good it was supposed to accomplish, it did. We don't need it anymore. These are the three conditions that describe the days of Moshiach. All Jews will be excited about Judaism. All human beings will be moral. And the earth will be fabulously rich. Like the Garden of Eden. So what will we do all day? There'll be nothing to fight. Sounds a little boring. That's why we need Moshiach, the person who will be a great teacher. And he will reintroduce us to the Torah. Because the way we think of Torah is good and evil. You got to fight the evil, try to be good. After Mashiach comes, that will not be the case. The Torah will not be the antidote to evil. It won't be the broom with which we sweep up the mess. It won't be the sugar with which we sweeten the bitter, because nothing will be bitter. So we will be doing mitzvahs for their own sake, the way it was meant to be in the first place. So what will our excitement be? The reality and the understanding of God's investment, God's closeness, God's presence, because God is everywhere, right? Right? Only in truth, not in fact. In fact, unholiness is everywhere. Have you read the papers lately? <laughs> Did you see any mention of God? Other than the fact that he's not allowed in the public schools. So, in truth, God is everywhere. In fact, <laughs> so, when the fact surrenders to the truth, we will see God, we will know God, we will celebrate God, It'll be a fantastic relationship. We won't need evil to excite us because true is true. And that's exciting enough. So that's what we're waiting for. That's what we're anticipating. That's what we're praying for. And that's the truth. So let the fact surrender. Let it become the truth. Because it's the only way. Truth will not surrender to the fact. The Jewish people, for example, Am Yisrael Chai, right? We exist. How is it that the world can't make peace with that? It's because we exist in truth. In fact, we're not supposed to exist. So the anti-Semite knows you're not supposed to exist. You're violating the facts. So some of them 
will worship us. Wow, you can violate the facts. You must be true. The rest simply say, no. Fact is, you shouldn't exist. Get out of here. So how is anti-Semitism going to end? I think there's a whole lecture about that. Right? Anti-Semitism will end when the world will stop worshipping fact and will get comfortable with truth. What will be the first truth that the, that the human race will discover? Jews. When their attitude and understanding of the Jewish people changes, the world is perfect. Because when the truth becomes popular, it replaces the fact, and the world is wonderful. One final thought. Yeah, we have a few minutes. What is the story of Joseph and his brothers? By the way, talking about truth and fact, there's a, there's a, a filmmaker in Minnesota who decided to do a film on the exodus from Egypt. Archaeological, historical, to make a long story short, everybody told him that there, aren't, there is no evidence of Jews ever being in Egypt, including some rabbis. We were never in Egypt, we were never slaves, we never came out, we never went in. The whole thing is just um, a Baba Misa. A Baba from my grandfather. <laughs> It's a two-hour film. The first 15 minutes, he has all these people saying, no evidence, no evidence. Egyptologists, archaeologists, no evidence. The rest of the two hours is evidence. And the most interesting thing that they found was in the city of Goshen, where the Jews lived, there is a pyramid, which is built for, the, for royalty to be buried. And there's a statue in the pyramid, obviously a very important personage, but his skin is pink, his hair is red, and he's wearing a robe with many colors. So they ask one of these experts, is that Joseph? And he says, well, if it's not, it's the biggest coincidence in history. So we actually have a statue of Yosef. And yes, he had red hair. Doesn't sound Jewish? What color hair did Esau have? Runs in the family. At any rate, what was the story? Yaakov gives Yosef a coat with many colors. His brothers, all grown men, are so jealous they want to kill him over a coat. No, 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 over his dreams. <laughs> he had a dream, and they want to kill him. Moral of the story, conventional wisdom, the moral of the story is fathers should not show favoritism. Yaakov should not have done that. He shouldn't have given Yosef a special coat. For this, we had to go to Mount Sinai <laughs> and walk across a sea so that God could tell us, don't show favoritism. Doesn't sound right. Dr. Phil could tell you the same thing without splitting seas. If it's a Torah story, it's got to tell you something that human beings would not on their own come to. That you shouldn't show favoritism, that's a pretty common, reasonable, human thinking. It's the opposite. Grown men, tzaddikim, all of them, 
righteous, holy people, the heads of the tribes, our ancestors wanted to kill over a coat? Not possible. The question is not why did Yaakov show favoritism? That was correct. The question is, how did these intelligent, holy people have such a terrible reaction? It's like Yosef was head and shoulders above the rest. His idea, his way of being Jewish was correct. Yaakov should not say that. He shouldn't tell his other children, listen to the man, he's got the right idea. No, he shouldn't do that. If Albert Einstein had a brother who was not, you know, the brightest bulb in the in the chandelier, <laughs> you imagine his brother saying, "Why is everybody always talking about Albert? Always pictures of Albert. What is he? Some kind of an Einstein?" Yes, yes, he is. So, what should his brother feel? Jealous? Or proud. He should be proud to be his brother. He should be running around saying, have you heard about Albert? He's playing with the numbers again. <laughs> so the same is true with what the Torah is trying to tell us. The world has suffered more from jealousy than from any other negative character traits. Cain and Abel, what was the problem? Jealousy. Yitzchak and, and Yishmael, problem? Jealousy. Yaakov and Esav, jealousy. Yosef and his brothers, jealousy. Korach and Mo. it just goes on and on. What is anti-Semitism? Jealousy. The Torah is trying to elevate us to a higher level where instead of being jealous, we are proud. Korach was related to Moshe. Why wasn't he proud? Why are the nations of the world not proud to be one of the nations along with the Jewish nation that is so special? So again, what's going to happen when Mashiach comes? What will happen with all the anti-Semitism? Jealousy is a fact. It's not true. When the fact goes, instead of being jealous, they will be proud. And it's already started. In some areas, some segments of non-Jewish communities who are proud to help Israel, proud to help a Jew. It's already started. Because it's the only way that it can be. Jealousy is temporary. Because it's not godly. So this is what we're looking forward to. How long will it take for all Jews to be excited about Judaism? What will it take? Not that much. Get them all to come here. And by the end of the week, they will be proud Jews. What will it take for the entire world to make peace, want peace, pursue peace? What will it take? So some people say, ah, oh, it's going to be a long time. In fact, it's never going to happen. There has always been wars. There will always be war. Get used to it. Mm -mm. There have been wars for 5,000 years. We're not used to it. In fact, with every passing year, we become more intolerant. What are we fighting about? What's the war about? What are we doing? It doesn't make sense anymore. So will it be a miracle if all people lived in peace? 
or is it a miracle that another day goes by and we're still repeating the same stupid mistakes of the past? Was it a miracle that communism collapsed? Or was it a miracle that it lasted 70 years? It should have collapsed after 10. It's not a miracle. The fact surrendered to the truth. I mean, if you go back and listen to Gorbachev's speech, he literally said that. He said, the fact is we are communists. The truth is, it's not working. <laughs> so give it up. It would not be a miracle. The miracle is that another day has gone by and we're still doing the same silly, painful, destructive, ridiculous behavior. So in five minutes, the world could sober up. In five minutes? Well, <laughs> 5,779 years and five minutes. And how will the world become so rich that we won't have to work? Oh, one simple possibility is solar energy. If energy became free, everything would be cheap. You wouldn't have to work. If you could run a factory for free, if you could fly a plane for free, what do you have to pay for it? The peanuts? Which they don't serve anymore? The kosher meal. <laughs> Pigs become kosher, they'll be cheap. <laughs> so, let Mashiach come. Let the pig become kosher for all I care. Why not? But let the world become Mashiachdik. Let every Jew celebrate being Jewish. Let every non-Jew celebrate being human and not animalistic. And let the world provide all the wealth that it has, which we haven't tapped into. It's all there. It's all true. It just needs to become a fact. And that's a fact. <laughs> and that's the truth. And the truth is that we have to stop and go to the next program. Please visit MyJLI.com to learn more about JLI's multiple educational offerings and TorahCafe.com to view highlights and lectures from past retreats.